Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Australia has decided, and we have a new government. A long and at times tedious campaign is finally behind us, and for once the polls weren't confected nonsense. But with all the flying champagne corks on the Labor side and the bitter commiserations on the Coalition side, were there some hard lessons for the media in the result on Saturday night? If you were on Twitter on Saturday night, you might have seen some projectiles being thrown at the media by several former media heavyweights. Were they right that after a decade of conservative rule, our media is biased to the right and risk averse? In this edition, we ask some big picture questions about the media and ask, has the political landscape just shifted and did the media even notice? Joining us today, we have two journalists who think deeply about the role of the media and also work at the coalface, if I can still say that. Troy Bramston is a senior writer and columnist at The Australian. He's the writer of several books and his latest, Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny, is out now. Troy Bramston has joined us. Welcome. Catherine Murphy is The Guardian's political editor. Catherine, welcome to you as well. Thank you both for being here with us today on Fourth Estate. Can I begin by talking to you about the criticism that has come media's way in the coverage of this election campaign? It's come from various fronts, but one criticism that I would like to start with comes from the Labor heavyweights, Wayne Swan and Mark McGowan, that the media attempted to bully Anthony Albanese. Now, the vision was certainly hard to watch at times. I guess the question to you both is, did journalists at times bully Anthony Albanese, or were Swan and McGowan perhaps just trying to deflect Albanese's at times weak performance? Troy, can I begin with you? Well, I think at times the travelling media was a little bit too robust. Um, They were certainly um, pressing Anthony Albanese for answers. Uh, They were questioning his answers. Um, And, of course, it is the role of the media to ask uh, politicians difficult questions and when you don't get the right answer to ask again and seek to to get the answers that you're looking for. This is about transparency. It's about accountability. Um, But I do think some of it was a little bit over the top, a little bit too persistent. And I think anybody watching the live press conferences uh, at home or at work or on their mobile devices would have been a little bit shocked at how some of the media were acting in those daily press conferences. Now, I want to say in their defence, um, this is very, very difficult being in the in the travelling media because you're up early, you're working late, you're travelling all around the country, often not knowing where you're going, you're being dragged along to events, and then you only get a very, very small window of opportunity to ask uh, questions. So I can understand why some of the media were particularly persistent in trying to get their question up. Um, But even at Anthony Albanese's first press conference as Prime Minister in the Blue Room in Parliament House, um, he had to point out to journalists still having won the election Um, that because they shout, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get their question answered. So I think there is room for uh, some reflection about how the media did operate in the campaign. Catherine, what do you think? Was it persistence or was it rudeness at times? And is is being on the campaign trail where you're moving from one spot to another and you don't know where you are half the time, is is that an excuse? 
Well, it's certainly arduous to cover campaigns. I've, I've covered a, a lot of them, um, and it certainly is arduous. And obviously, uh, the Australian public, the democracy relies on a robust press that's prepared to hold leaders to account. And as Troy said a minute ago, to persist uh, when uh, questions are not being answered and very obviously not being answered. Mm. However, I think uh, in this election campaign, things uh, things were more than robust. I think the behaviour at some points was completely uh, unprofessional and out of line. Um, also, I think, but but it's sort of a superficial thing to just sort of point to the travelling media as if that's somehow some sort of floating bubble that's disconnected from the rest of the industry and the incentives of the industry in our current era. A lot of the journalists were asking questions suggested by their editors. So there's that. There's also the incentives of, um, you know, the modern contemporary 24-7 digital media market where all of the sort of underpinning incentives in that particular market are about conflict, engagement and self-promotion. And I think in uh, some instances, some of the uh, some of the questioning was performative, as well as trying to get to any particular truth or uh, or revelation, I suppose, uh, from the leaders. Now, I think you know Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese both got a bit of it. I think Alban- Anthony Albanese got a whole lot more of it. I think. Uh, the opposition leader was held to a measurably different standard than Scott Morrison was, and that is in part uh, the difference between incumbency and opposition and in part due to Scott Morrison's practised dominance of the Canberra media pack. The outgoing Prime Minister was completely contemptuous of most of us, even people he was sort of close to, and brought that swagger and alpha into the domination of the press club, the press pack you know, on any given day and obviously behaved like that during the campaign. The opposition leader was attempting to model a different form of leadership, a more sort of lower key, less swaggering, empathetic leadership that kind of then ran up against the sort of those incentives I mentioned a minute ago, conflict, engagement and self-promotion among uh, some of the the travelling media. But Look, Troy's right. I mean, obviously, I have been in the travelling media, you know, for a long, long time. Uh, I was on the campaign trail for a few days this time as well. Uh, you know, I don't want to beat up on young journalists and somehow suggest that, you know, it's just some sort of Lord of the Flies episode that's disconnected from the mothership or the incentives of the modern media. It's, you know, it's entirely related. These things are related. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we as an industry, so, you know, have to understand a couple of things. I think we have to understand that we are accountable, that we are powerful, and the way that we conduct ourselves, uh, you know, at moments that are very important in in democracies, you know, there will be commentary about that. People will have views about that. And, uh, and I think we need to be open to those views. It doesn't mean that we agree with every piece of criticism that's sent our way collectively, but I think a sort of brittle, defensive response is not really in our interests either. Mm. Well, well, we'll come to the responses soon. I'm interested in that point that you bring up, Catherine, about an example being set by the way Morrison dealt with the media, that kind of alpha male thing. And I'm wondering whether, in a sense, it was 
in the end, easier for um, the media to be able to, to push Albanese around than it was for them to push Scott Morrison around. I mean, is it the case that media has become accustomed to dealing with alpha male politicians, people like Morrison, people like Tony Abbott, and as a result, everyone gets treated in the same way? Look, possibly, Monica, there's possibly something to that. I do think, though, in all of the campaigns I have ever covered, and I've covered everyone since 1996, mm. I think I think opposition leaders always get a harder time than the incumbents in terms of the of the press dynamic, and there is a reason for that. That is sort of intrinsic to accountability in our role in a democracy. Obviously, you know, a prime minister, an incumbent prime minister who is known, is known right? Um, A challenger, somebody who is presenting themselves for the job is unknown in the, in the capacity of prime minister, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think just as an instinct, I think journalists uh, feel a sense of obligation to ensure in acquitting their duties with the public that they, you know, that, that the putative prime minister, the opposition leader is tested and tested, you know, over, over the period of the campaign in a variety of formats. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, um, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's a bit more complicated than just, uh, you know, the, the sort of boyo culture in, uh, amongst uh, Canberra politicians, particularly over this past decade or so. I think it is a bit more complicated than that. But, uh, but again, I'm, you know, I just think it's important that we are, as, as a profession, that we are self-aware, not cowed or scared or worried about what people on Twitter might say about us as we go about our duties. I mean, that's ridiculous. But just understand that we are we are part of the firmament. We also exercise power uh, and, you know, we, we, we regulate ourselves in essence um, and there's good reasons for that, but, you know, we need to be, we need to be open to a dialogue about, you know, how and how and why and how effectively we're doing our jobs. Troy, what do you make of all of that? Yeah, no, look, I think there's something to add to that, um, which, of course, uh, we all know, and that is that on the very first day of the election campaign, Anthony Albanese had that stumble over naming the cash rate and the unemployment rate. Um, now, there's a debate about is that a gotcha question or not. I actually think it's an important question that most people observing politics um, would know about. And if you want to be the prime minister, you should know what the unemployment rate is. And so what happened in that moment was there was a shudder in the in the Labor campaign and there was a sense of relief in the Liberal campaign that they may be able to finally turn the screws on Anthony Albanese. Now, at that moment, that enabled the media then, I think, to, to change their approach with Anthony Albanese for the rest of the campaign, which was through the frame of, is, is he up to it? Um, is he match fit? Is he across the detail? And so that stumble, I think, set the tone for the rest of his media pack uh, right through up until election day. And of course, there were more stumbles. Um, and so that, that also, I think, coloured uh, the way the media covered him, which was the way he performed. Mm. So do you think then that covering the daily gaffes and the to and froing is that just inescapable then? Is it something that has to happen, should happen in the public interest and is entirely justifiable? Well, I think that if you're a prime minister or a leader of the opposition in an election campaign, you've got to know some of these key things. I mean, I remember very vividly as a university student watching the 1996 uh, election debate uh, between John Howard and Paul Keating moderated by Ray Martin. And he asked them both, you know, how much is a, is a carton of milk? How much does uh, bread cost? Now, they are pure gotcha questions. I'm not so sure that the questions asked of Anthony Albanese were gotcha questions, but he needed to be across his brief. And he wasn't across his brief um, at the start of the campaign. And when I talked to 
uh, people working on the Labor campaign and his MPs, they, they were a bit concerned um, that he needed to sharpen up. And I think he did sharpen up and he did perform better um, as the campaign went on. But those early stumbles did, I think, colour the way the media was going to cover him. Okay, so, um, you know, in the shadow of journalists working under, I suppose, given what Catherine is saying, old paradigms of, of coverage where, where gaffes are important and, and are deemed to tell us something about a candidate, where to be barracking for one party or the other is the way things are, something that we accept. Do you think that after this election that it's safe to say that journalists, by and large, you know, missed perhaps some of the the real stories of this election, given the result? Catherine? <laughs> well, look, I, I'll just say quickly uh, in relation to Troy's point about Albanese's performance in the campaign, I completely agree with that. Um, the, the Labor leader did not have a great campaign. I think that is obvious, was obvious to anyone watching it. Um, and uh, and I think Troy's right to point out that sort of that herd instinct that happens in press packs once weakness is identified, people tend to hone in on the weakness, right? I just want to say that in passing. Um, in terms of, though, did we miss the important stories? Uh, well, again, it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it, these conversations are always difficult, Monica, because it's sort of like, you know, this great kind of blamange, a collective we. I mean, who is we, right? Um, yep. You know, did all of us miss all the stories or some of us or, you know, which stories did we, right? I mean, there's all these difficulties associated with um with that question, it's a, it's a completely legitimate one, but I'm just saying it's a bit hard to answer in the in the broad. In in our organisation, uh, Guardian Australia, um, we did do our best to try and highlight a number of issues that were not getting enough airplay. We thought during the campaign, uh, aged care was a case in point. Uh, the the sort of um, the, you know that the rising number of COVID infections is another case in point that neither campaigns really wanted to engage with this in much detail. Health policy was another point where we thought we're just not getting traction around some of these really present issues for Australians uh, at this point in time, right? Removed from the whole circus of an election campaign. So what we did was sort of, um, you know, divide reporting resources really between uh, the campaign, uh, you know, keeping the campaign ticking over because obviously citizens in a democracy need to be informed about how the campaign is, is panning out, both in news and in commentary. Mm -hmm. And then we sort of held reporting resources back to keep prosecuting issues that uh, that we feel are important. So uh, we sort of had this mixed coverage, I think, where we were prosecuting the daily stuff and we were also working up for morning stories you know, new facts about the, you know, the difficulties in aged care, workforce, wages, other things, you know, stats around the number of COVID infections, that sort of stuff, right? So we we sort of consciously tried to resist the gravitational pull of um, just the coverage sort of revolving around the horse race and the daily sort of, you know, stuntery. But you still, I mean, have, to, but you still covered it. You have to cover yes. it, right? You know, exactly. It's, it's it's sort of like trying to do all things. And, and again, you know, sort of like looking at, um, you know, the media, the, the sort of economics of media in the uh, environment we find ourselves in, um, you know, none of us, none of the, these great news organisations in this country are resourced at the levels we were in the golden era, which, frankly, I largely missed. But anyway, I hear it was great. Um, you know, there's just not uh, the resourcing that there used to be in order to be absolutely comprehensive on coverage. So, 
you know, when when readers and viewers and listeners look at our output and think, oh my God, that's shrill and superficial and kind of crap. And, you know, why aren't people doing things in depth? Well, the answer to that is a, a number of us are and and make a point of uh, continuing to do it. But um, but it but it is hard, obviously, because uh, you know there's not there's there's not infinite resources in order to cover infinite number of issues. So and look, as I looked around the coverage of the campaign, you know, I did see my peers and others, you know, plugging away on the policy stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did do an interesting digital analysis. Uh, Nick Evershed, our data editor, sort of quantified the questions that were being asked on the campaign and then sort of laid that against, you know, a, a sort of reference points of issues that people think are important. And and there was a gap. There was a measurable gap between the questions being asked on the campaign and issues of concerns to concerned to Australians. But again, I say, you know, there are reasons for this. And, uh, and I think, you know, if we can keep consumers of media um, you know, if we can be honest about that with readers, it's part of, you know, something that's very important to me, which is establishing that sort of relationship of trust with an audience. Uh, you know, it, it it enables us to sort of make the case, I guess, you know, to, to you know, draw on support from our audiences in terms of subscriptions and memberships. And and you know use those resources for good. Use those resources to try to try and drill down into issues that are important. So, you know, again, it's it's sort of it's a multifactorial answer, but but you know it's important to sort of lay out all the points in the compass. I think. So, Troy, what do you think? Yeah, look, I think across um, all the different media organisations, um, we did pretty well as a as a as a collective media unit, I guess in terms of a range of policy issues, whether it's analysing what's happening in the economy, um, health policy, the environment, um, industrial relations, education. Um, but one of the problems was that the major parties weren't promising a huge amount that was radically different from each other. I mean, of course, there were differences, but they and neither party, major party, went to, the, to an election with a sweeping manifesto for change where you could rigorously analyse these policies because they just weren't being offered. In fact, the Labor and coalition strategies were, in a sense, to sort of minimise um, the policy differences and focus on personality and leadership and things like that. So so whilst I think the media did cover these issues pretty well, um, for, for the audiences to complain there's not much being talked about in these spaces, it's partly because the parties didn't offer anything substantially radical or uh, different. Um, so I'd make I'd make that point. Um, but you know, I think more more broadly, the media did do a pretty good job in understanding what was happening in the different electorates. I mean, we're all well aware of the teals um, and the role that they were playing. I think that uh, whilst we identified it and interviewed them and and subjected them to scrutiny, I think across the media we we're probably all a little bit surprised at how successful they were um, in winning those previously liberal held seats in Perth. Uh, Melbourne and Sydney, um, and of course the Greens. We, we we knew the Greens were in the hunt in in a, in those Brisbane-based uh, seats, um, but again, I think we were probably a little bit surprised. You know, you talk to like Catherine, I'm sure, would talk to senior Liberals, senior Labor people, um, and e- even they were not so sure that we were going to see the political earthquake um, that did erupt on election day. The other point I'd make about the Teals is, you know, they're subject to a lot of criticism, and I gave them some criticism, but my, my criticism was mainly on the basis that, 
um, you know, I understood there was a, a chord being struck in the electorate for a better approach to handling uh, women's issues, climate change, integrity, um, but they didn't have the detailed policies. They didn't have, um, you know, the costed policies. They didn't have clear climate change emission reduction targets. They didn't have a clear model for how they wanted an integrity commission to be established. So I thought the teals were a little bit evasive on policy, even though we recognised they were posing a significant political threat. And I still think that Simon Holmes Accords Climate 200 organisation uh, needed scrutiny. Um, and a lot of the questions that we're asking about, you know, how funding was allocated, the role in campaigns, how candidates were being chosen, uh, probably wasn't, we weren't getting the answers uh, from his organisation that we wanted to. So I think we did the best um, but, you know, we were, we were in some ways limited because the parties and the teals were not providing the information um, that we really needed. Do they really need to provide that level of information, though? I mean, isn't, isn't it the role of journalists in the coverage of an election campaign to go out, uh, in part at least, and find out what people want, what they're thinking? I mean, part of the success of the teals and and the other independents was that they went door knocking they were asking people what was important to them that seemed to me when when looking back on that that might not be a bad model for journalism to work by as well well i i agree monica but on the other hand um we you know it is frustrating sometimes for the audience to say oh you're not focusing enough on policies uh, you're only focusing on personalities and calling the horse race and the political analysis hmm. uh, and not enough on policies, yet the Teals were not offering detailed policy platforms. I mean, they, they were not. I mean, I accept they're not a political party, but they certainly were coordinated. Uh, a lot of their funding came from one source. Um, they were using often the same strategies, um, but we weren't able to, to break through and analyse those policies. So I think I think the audience is has probably been a little bit unfair to, to journalists saying, oh, you know, why don't you focus more on policy? Well, we tried to um, in, in many spaces, but we couldn't get the answers that we wanted. But that is not to deny, of course, that there was a mood for change uh, and these teals were very, very successful. And what they were running on seemed to be uh, enough, as you say. I mean, maybe the voters didn't want those detailed policy statements. They were sold anyway simply by their values um, and their their personal integrity and, and what they were promising to do in terms of changing the way politics is run in this country. Catherine, did, did the Teals get enough policy scrutiny? Well, the Teals got a hell of a lot of scrutiny. Um, I agree with uh, with Troy, though. It's sort of it was a funny thing. Right up until Saturday night, I thought it was equally possible that all of these people won in all of these seats, or none of them did. And I think that was sort of the, the the view of sort of major party strategists as well. I mean, you know, part of the part of those calculations, of course, that we all were making, we, we were, I think, all a bit uh, all a bit gun shy because of 2019 and polling being unreliable. But that's a whole other conversation. In terms of you know, did they get enough scrutiny? I think, my God, they got an amazing free media campaign through through this election, I don't mean like a free pass. I agree, like we were all basically sort of looking at them, looking at Climate 200, looking at what they were, you know, how they were conducting themselves, you know, like all of that was sort of hoed over well and truly. But, oh, God almighty, I was just like the biggest um, uh, sort of disadvantage an independent campaign has, even a well-funded one, with a with a professional strategy standing behind them, the biggest disadvantage they have is is low name recognition, mm. and 
you know, there was sort of, uh, because the coverage uh, of this sort of disruption in uh, or realignment in the Australian electorate was, was you know, across all outlets and, and quite, you know, there was a lot of it. I mean, they must have been just delighted, seriously, with the with the degree of interest, whether it was hostile or or, or neutral or, you know, or, or or whatever point you know point yeah. along that spectrum, because they were in the you know, they were in the headlines every single day, <laughs> and that would have I don't I don't know how to measure the value of that to their campaigns, but it would have been considerable because, obviously, they had pretty big budgets they were all advertising and and had big digital strategies and all of that um but you know just that daily coverage television newspapers websites radio podcasts like you know incredible uh incredible philip i think for their campaigns so you know that'll that'll be sort of interesting i guess for media analysts to look to look at after the event Although very, very hard to quantify, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, Troy, not, not wanting to place the weight of, you know, News Corp solely on your shoulders, but Margaret Simons, Dennis Muller have, have made the point that news tabloids and Sky After Dark in particular, you know, took uh, took a side. Uh, I, I think we can all agree that they took a side. Do you think it's healthy for our democracy for some media organisations to actually back a horse more or less exclusively in, in the kind of vociferous way that, seem to have occurred with those um, parts of the organisation? Well, I I think uh, taking a longer view, I mean, a lot of our major media organisations have often um, taken a tribal stance, I guess you could call it, when it comes to election campaigns. I mean, it's worth pointing out that, you know, for 120 years, the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney, of course, never supported a state Labor government in an editorial. Um, so for most of their history, they've been a viscerous, a, a viscerously, you know, conservative organisation that, you know, their slogan is independent always. Well, I mean, anyone who picks up a, a history book about the Sydney Morning Herald or indeed The Age uh, knows they've often been very, very conservative and been very, very opposed to, to Labor governments. I mean, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, for example, called for Gough Whitlam uh, to resign in 1975 while The Australian um, had supported uh, Whitlam's election in 1972. So you're talking about the editorials there, right? I mean, in terms well, of the news coverage, though, in terms of skewed news coverage, do you think it's uh, you think it's worth doing these days, or has the media media ecosystem changed so much that th- that just becomes a point of even greater resentment? Well, I, I think newspapers have always taken. Uh, positions. I mean, that that's the long history of, of newspapers. That's what they've always done. Tabloids are a particular type of newspaper. I mean, I work for a broadsheet newspaper, and that's had a, had a long history of supporting um, both sides of politics. Um, I can't speak on behalf of News Corporation. I don't run any any uh, any uh, newspapers. I don't run uh, Sky News. All, all I can say to you is that from my own perspective, um, I've never been asked to write something I've been a journalist for more than 10 years. I've written a weekly column for more than 10 years and no one's ever said you can't write that um, or, you know, I want you to write something else or had something spiked. I mean, that's just the, not the way um, it has ever worked. But I, I accept um, that the weight of commentary um, in news corporation papers and on Sky News After Dark has been hostile to the Labor Party. Um, and as, and, but I don't necessarily think, you know, that it's necessarily been pro-Scott Morrison. 
I mean, if you actually look at the Sky News After Dark programming, um, often they're giving a platform to Pauline Hanson and Clive Palmer and the Liberal Democrats, um, and they're highly critical um, of Scott Morrison and, and the Liberal Party. So, you know, I just think we need a bit of a nuanced discussion here. I'm not, I'm not denying um, what people are saying, but um, I think to, to, to treat News Corporation as one homogenous voice Mm-hmm. Um, is completely wrong. Um, and I know that I, I have a voice and I was able to interview Anthony Albanese several times um, during the election campaign and he thought that I was a very fair uh, and straight up and down journalist and my interviews with him um, generated uh, about half a dozen uh, front page news stories and there was no complaint uh, from the Labor camp about that. Right. And and do you think that the result, the actual election result, tells us much about the, you know, the power of, of, of tabloids and uh, any p- partisan position that they might take um, I- in terms of, you know, h- how much sway it actually has? Do you think it has any sway? Well, I've always been sceptical of the claim that, you know, newspapers can decide election outcomes. Um, as I say, you know, newspapers, since they were invented hundreds of years ago, have always had editorial opinions. Um, some of them have been, you know, often very, very sharp and, and some, some audiences haven't liked that. Um, but I've just never really accepted the view that the media can, can change elections. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just don't think that, that that argument stacks up. And as I say, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald for 120 years never supported um, um, Bob Carr when he was elected or Neville Rand or Bill McKell or Joe Carl or any of the great Labor premiers that are in office forever. Um, so that argument didn't didn't work for the Sydney Morning Herald um, trying to get rid of uh, a, a Labor government. So I'm, I'm not sure that it works works today for those in the News Corp stable that might have wanted to not see a Labor government. Right. Catherine, others, including The Guardian, also can be accused of reporting through a prism. Truth in reporting aside, is it an issue that needs consideration? Well, uh, I think uh, any news media consumer at this point in our history will understand that as they look across the media landscape that the era of he said, she said, uh, you know, neutral reporting as a ubiquitous construct in in the mainstream media has passed. Uh, Obviously, you know, I think plenty of straight, fair, balanced, um, intelligent reporting is still being done in in all outlets. Uh, but I think it's kind of stupid to suggest that the sort of tone of news organisations in in the current period is somehow neutral. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of ridiculous. Um, look, but there is a difference, obviously, between editorials and and the stuff that appears in the news pages and there is a difference certainly where I stand between you know news and commentary and the two things are separate endeavors and uh, and need to be sort of approached from different uh you know sort of using different parts of your brain if that makes sense right yes. yeah um so there's all that um Obviously, the Guardians uh, has is a progressive uh, news organisation editorially in terms of the basic values, uh, in terms of the Australian operation, which uh, Lenore Taylor runs, and I am the political editor. We have been, you know, we we have been part of this experiment since the beginning. Uh, you know, when there was only a handful of us, uh, we as practitioners and professionals have very very clear values. That's not about partisan biases. I mean. 
look, you know, people say, you know, are you neutral? Have you got biases? Well, yeah, I mean, I do have biases. I am biased in favour of science. I am biased in favour of expert evidence. I am biased in favour of truth. And I have no trouble expressing those those biases. I think any journalist who, you know, is worthy of the name should have those biases, right? Not not sort of, uh, you know, assigning oneself to any particular partisan position or propaganda of any particular side. But, you know, like to give an example, obviously we uh, at The Guardian, me as a reporter and our environment team have been, you know, absolutely dead set focused on climate policy and the environment over the last three years. We've done an enormous amount of reporting on this. Now, I didn't, you know, say that Scott Morrison was, you know, sort of I, I was, uh, you know, terrible at climate change because I don't like the Liberal Party. <laughs> I mean, that is ridiculous. What I brought to my coverage of that was the biases that I've just declared, science, expert evidence, truth. And if they are, you know, if, if that's your centre of gravity as a professional, if they are the things that genuinely motivate you as a journalist, get you out of bed every morning sitting at your desk for the 12 or 14 hour day that you will inevitably do in, you know, our highly sort of work intensified environment, you need to have values <laughs> in order to inform your work. Those values, you know, enable you to uh, have productive relationships with all kinds of people in politics, but also be able to call them out and, and, and you know, very directly if that's what the truth requires. So I think the whole, you know, there's, there's a bunch of issues here too, Monica. There's sort of, you know, there's polarisation across the media landscape in, you know, which has been a function of the disruption of the internet um, you know, there's sort of more forward-leaning editorial biases evident in a, in a number of publications. You know, there's polarisation more generally that's risen because of technology, social media, herding, tribing, algorithms, et cetera, all of that. There's a whole cultural phenomenon sitting underneath this conversation, uh, which I think we just need to genuflect towards. But in terms of, um, I think, you know, trying to swim across all these very complicated rips as a professional in the current media age, uh, I think trust is what matters the most. And, and trust, I think if people trust you, you, you can exercise some influence if you are biased in favour of the truth. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I just do think that's the key to everything. And that's why I am, you know, so in favour of, you know, showing our methods as a profession, being open to reasonable critique and criticism uh, and also having a very clear articulation of our values and our place in the democracy at this point in time, because from that bedrock, from that foundation, positive things can emerge and and can also cut through the contest and the clutter and and the sort of performative element of the age we live in. Troy, uh, would you disagree with much of what Catherine had to say there? And if you don't disagree. Are you confident that um, uh, that from the media that you were involved in and that you have observed that that has occurred? Yeah, look, I would just add to that. I mean, I, I just find some of the sort of critique of News Corporation, for example, to be um, particularly simplistic um, and not nuanced. I mean, the idea that 
the Australians journalists writing in the business section or the travel section or the sport section or the art section, you know, have some kind of inherent bias that they want to uh, destroy the Labor Party and see the coalition re-elected the government, I think is, is ridiculous. Um, it is a centre-right paper and the opinion page um, would lean to the centre-right. Um, but there are plenty of other people who have uh, different viewpoints, and I think that our reporting um, is up and down. I mean, the editorials take a view, and the, the editors, you know, write headlines that might have a particular view. Um, but you know, I read all media. I'm a consumer of the Guardian and the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and the ABC, and I think um, there are great journalists doing good work in all of those publications. And I think it's unfair to characterise them. Um, as some kind of left wing or right wing or whatever. I think it's really unfair. And I think some of the criticism that's come from the academy um, also reflects their biases um, and is not looking at the journalism that's being done and the work that's being done um, across the media landscape. And you don't have to agree with everything in a newspaper or an online publication to be able to recognise there is some great journalism there and things that you would agree with and things that you've found valuable. Um, so I just think we need a more of a nuanced discussion rather than this sort of tribal attacks on each other um, as a media, you know, as, as representatives of, of the different media. I think it's not like that. And I think most of our readers often, you know, people would read The Australian, they'd read The Guardian, they'd read The Sydney Morning Herald, they watch the ABC. They have a diversity um, of media and they'll, and they'll make their own their own judgments about that. So I think we need to be a little bit fairer to the journalists that are working hard in very under very different difficult uh, circumstances. I think we can agree with that. This election has been a rejection of a lot of things that we've previously taken for granted or, you know, uh, the, the end of long-running orthodoxies. What lessons should the media take away from this election? Catherine? Ooh. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> that's a that's a whole com that's a whole other podcast. What lessons? <laughs> um, no, I think look, there's something to um, uh, the the idea that you know the sort of 2022 is a correction on 2019. I think in some respects, and, and we need to understand that. I think uh, you know sort of efforts, I guess, to prosecute fact based arguments in a whole bunch of areas over the past three years have contributed to the result that we saw. On Saturday night, I, I believe these that that has happened. In terms of just the tone, though, the country where the country's at, which is sort of really, I think, at the nub of your question, Monica. Mm. Um, you know, the country wants things to be different. The country wants a different style of representation in terms of from from politics. Uh, you know, there's this big realignment going on in the electorate where we're becoming sort of bizarrely sort of. Uh, less partisan but more polarised and people are sort of pushing back against that. Um, and so I think, you know, in terms of that ground-up practice, that's always a really good lesson for journalism, uh, I think, to engage with the community, try and work out what's important, try and stick with what's important rather than chasing every little sort of shadow on the wall or every little bright light that passes you by. I think it's sort of, I guess it reinforces that the importance of of trying to, you know, focus on the things that matter and and do things from the bottom up. Thanks, Catherine. And you, Troy? Yeah, I think we've seen an escalation in the dealignment um, happening in the in the political landscape. So the two party system, I think, has been in terminal decline, but that has escalated at this election. And we probably, as a, a as a media collective, if I can use that term, meaning all journalists, probably need to. 
um, continue to focus on the two major parties, what does it mean for them? Because obviously the Liberal Party's lost its heartland seats uh, to Teal Independence. Um, Labor has lost um, a seat to the to the Greens in in Queensland. Um, it's lost its own safe Labor seat to an independent in Western Sydney. So we're seeing the a dealignment happen here. So what does that mean? It means that we have to understand what is happening to the major parties, why they're losing support, and then focus even more on those uh, minor parties and those independents that are winning the seats. Who are they? Who are the, who are they appealing to? What are their policy? values, what are their policy ideas? So I think they need to be um, given more scrutiny, but um, the political landscape has changed. Uh, we're not going to have a top-down two-party system uh, dominant anymore, and I think the media need, needs to reflect that. So I'd like to thank you both for a fascinating and forthright discussion, Troy Bramston and Catherine Murphy. Nice to be with you. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Catherine. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. And make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even, and my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.